0: My podcast tries to tell the story of the United States through the lives of the individuals who helped shape American history, but are less well-known than they perhaps should be. For example, I'm currently covering the life and career of Chief Justice John Marshall. While he didn't codify the laws the way Leo the Wise did, he nevertheless wrote the book on American jurisprudence, which has been as influential to legal practices in the United States as the Basilica will prove to be for the Byzantines. So, after you finish listening to the History of Byzantium, please come and follow the course of Human Events with American Biography. Hello everyone, and welcome to the History of Byzantium, episode 109, Leo the Wise? Last time, we surveyed the imperial reign of Basil I, the stable hand who murdered an emperor, took his place, and founded a dynasty that would last for two centuries. We also met his second son, Leo, who became heir apparent when his older brother Constantine died young. As you'll recall, Basil physically assaulted Leo when he learnt that the young man was cheating on his wife. It wasn't the immorality which bothered Basil, it was the threat to his carefully laid plans of succession. Leo was then accused of trying to assassinate his father, twice, and spent two years in the palace under house arrest. It's interesting that these events would echo throughout Leo's own time on the throne. His house arrest meant he spent his formative years unable to go on campaign with his father, and he never would go to war in person. Also, several attempts were made on Leo's life during his reign, often authored by those closest to him. Finally, he would go to more extreme lengths than Basil had to ensure that his son would succeed him. Born in 866, Leo was just 19 when he became sole ruler. He would stay on the throne for the next 26 years, making him the longest-serving ruler of Byzantium since Constantine V. Constantine's long reign cemented several things into Roman culture, like the Tachmata and iconoclasm. Leo's reign is not so dramatic or Controversial, but its longevity did help cement the Macedonian dynasty in place, and encouraged other trends which will play out over the next century. In his lifetime, Leo was a fairly popular figure and was given the epithet of the wise. Byzantine wisdom could refer to either one's scholarly attributes or one's piety. In Leo's case, both seem to be appropriate. As you'll recall, he was educated in the palace by Photius, the patriarch in exile, who was one of the most learned men of his day. Leo was not ashamed to bring his academic skills into the public sphere once he was emperor. During his time on the throne, he personally wrote poems, hymns, sermons, a treatise on military tactics, a spiritual guide for a monastery, and a funeral oration for his parents. Not to mention the new laws he published, along with a fresh set of law books. Seeing their emperor stand up at church festivals and give erudite speeches and theological instruction, it's not hard to see how a reputation spread about Leo's wisdom. However, we should be aware that this reputation was in some ways constructed by Basil. As I mentioned last episode, the murder of Michael III was a stain that could never be truly washed away. So the government's propaganda machine had to work hard to present the new dynasty in a favourable light. Photius and others adopted Davidic imagery early on, in their descriptions of Basil. The biblical King David was, of course, a simple farm boy until God's hand fell on his shoulder. After killing Goliath, he rose to become Israel's greatest king. Just as in our day, Macedonian Basil outwrestles a Bulgar champion and is elevated by God to become his vice-regent. Those with good memories will know that Heraclius also borrowed the image of David during his struggle with the Persians. David's famous son was Solomon, known for his wisdom. It was a natural PR comparison, like the old Jupiter and Hercules partnership of Diocletian and Maximian. Plus, this had a real ring of truth to it. The father was a country lad who only God could see the true potential in, The son was born in the palace, with access to the greatest education on offer. Wonderful Basil had left the empire in the hands of a son full of wisdom. Educated though he was, Leo was not, however, blessed with divine wisdom. He would prove to be a competent and largely successful emperor, but his record is no more impressive than his father's. What is different, though, is that Leo never went on campaign. Since Heraclius, every male emperor who could had led troops in person. Every ruler wanted to be seen as a man of action, as someone who God blessed with success, as someone doing something about the never-ending raids on Anatolia. And practically, it was good to attract men's personal loyalty rather than rely on distant generals. The easy answer to the question of why did Leo buck this trend would be that he didn't want to go. He was a bookworm, a lover, not a fighter. And while this may be true, I think we should bear in mind the fact that the balance of power in the eastern Mediterranean has shifted. The sack of Amorium during Theophilus's reign was 50 years in the past. The Arabs still raided annually, but their operations were becoming more localised. Raids into western Anatolia were now pretty rare. The need for the emperor to be seen marching out to save his people had diminished. The various generals of eastern Anatolia were handling things, and Basil's 19-year rule had set Leo up well. He never felt the need to leave the palace and show his face in the provinces. To complete this sketch of the emperor, we should look at a picture of him. And in this case, we can actually get a fairly good idea of what Leo looked like. Whether it was wise or not, I don't know. But for some reason, Leo asked for realistic depictions of his visage to be represented on his coins. So at the website and on social media, you can get a better sense of the man. Rather than the generic male face that most of his predecessors' coins reveal, we get more of a hint of his actual features, and we have a modern depiction too, based on those portraits. So now we have a picture of the emperor in our heads, What did this bookish 19-year-old do now that he was sole ruler? Well, after burying his father, he reburied Michael III. Yes, Leo asked for the drunkard's body to be exhumed and buried with full honours in the imperial mausoleum. Many scholars have used this as yet another piece of evidence, pointing to the fact that Leo was really Michael's son. And here the son dutifully honoured his real father. However, hopefully some of you have your hand in the air. Yes, you at the back. That's right. Theophilus's first act upon becoming emperor was to execute the murderers of Leo V. In both cases, the son was trying to distance himself from the horrible murder their fathers had committed. So, although a tasty piece of evidence, this could just be Leo trying to cleanse his regime from their nasty rise to power. That done, Leo moved on Photius. The patriarch had had quite the colourful career, as you know, and he now became the first Archbishop of Constantinople to be fired twice, if you don't count John Chrysostom. Despite being his former tutor, Leo was convinced that Photius was one of the men responsible for his two-year period of house arrest. Quite what his involvement was, we don't know, but he had certainly increased his influence over Basil towards the end, and Leo had no intention of tangling with such an intelligent adversary. On a charge of treason that was never proved, Photius was packed off into exile. To replace him, Leo chose his own brother, Stephen, who, as I mentioned last week, was castrated as a boy and educated in the ways of the church. Cunning and ruthless Basil had clearly planned for this to come to pass one day so that his family could dominate church and state at the same time. But Stephen was about a year younger than Leo, and the appointment of a teenage patriarch surely caused serious complaints from the clergy. Strangely, nothing is reported. For obvious reasons, many would have raised no official objections, But you would expect some men of principle to make a fuss, as they had done over iconoclasm and over the recent feuding between Ignatian and Photian supporters. But perhaps this was a compromise candidate that both so-called moderates and extremists could tolerate for the time being. Another man to enjoy promotion was Stylianos Zautsis, Stylianos was the father of Zoe, Leo's mistress, but he was also an excellent administrator and a fellow Macedonian of Armenian descent, hence his closeness to Basil. He had cultivated a strong relationship with Leo and now became the emperor's senior official. One of his most important tasks in these early years was to take over the codification of the laws, which Photius and Basil's team of jurists had been working on. The result of these efforts was the Basilica, or Imperial Code. This was a new compilation of Justinian's law codes, edited and rationalized into sixty books across six volumes. The great improvements over the Justinianic work were that it was in Greek rather than Latin, and would therefore be comprehensible to all, and that it was arranged in a systematic manner, with laws grouped together by topic, rather than the slightly random order of the earlier corpus. Adding to the collection were laws which had been enacted since Justinian's day, and over a hundred revisions to older laws, and a few new ones enacted by Basil and Leo. You may remember that I interviewed Professor Anthony Caldellis about his book, The Byzantine Republic. In his work, he argues that Leo's laws are a great example of how Roman justice functioned in practice. Rather than dictates from God's vice-regent, Leo's introduction to the new books makes it clear that lawmaking is a constant negotiation between ruler and ruled. Where custom has superseded the written law... Leo changes what is written. He even grudgingly admits to abandoning one of Basil's edicts because of resistance from the public. He is keen to assert, of course, that he has the final say on all this, but his attitude is interesting. It speaks to the reality of governing an empire where the behavior of the masses is constantly evolving. The basilica was a fine achievement and would form the basis for all future Byzantine legal developments. But Basil should get plenty of credit for it too. The first major crisis of Leo's reign came in 893 when the Bulgarians invaded Thrace. For a long time now, Bulgarian merchants had been allowed access to the markets of Constantinople. They paid duties on goods bought and sold, but otherwise were treated well by the imperial authorities. In the early 890s, though, the suggestion was made to restrict Bulgar trade to Thessalonica, the empire's second city in northern Greece. It was often the case that the Romans tried to restrict foreign trade to specific cities, because it was easier to administer business in one location. But this move increased the cost of goods for the Bulgarians. Obviously, products brought to the capital would now cost more, because they had to be lugged over to Thessalonica, and Byzantine middlemen would want their share too. Rumour has it that friends of Stilianos Zaudsis were behind this, and that the emperor's right-hand man had granted them this favour so that they could make a boatload of cash. Whatever the truth, the Bulgar Khan objected to Leo, who ignored his protests. The new Khan was Simeon, son of Boris, the man who had officially converted the Bulgars to Christianity. Rather like Basil, Boris wanted a son who could one day become his patriarch, so he'd sent the teenage Simeon to live in Constantinople and learn the ways of the church. Simeon had become a monk and apparently learnt the ways of Byzantium all too well during his decade there. In 893 he was relieved of his monastic vows and became the leader of Bulgaria. But rather than follow the Prince of Peace, Simeon was to prove an aggressive and unpredictable ruler. It seems likely that he used the issue of trade to demonstrate his power and get some concessions from the Romans. The following year, 894, he marched into Thrace at the head of his main army. The emir of Tarsus was raiding eastern Anatolia, and so Leo had to choose carefully how many men to dispatch in response. In the end, he put together a decent-sized force, including a contingent of Khazars who served as palace guards. The Bulgarians defeated the Roman force with relative ease and took many of these men prisoner. Knowing exactly how to goad the Byzantines, Simeon singled out the Khazars and had their noses mutilated before sending them home. When the palace guards returned with this ugly disfigurement, it was clear that Simeon wanted to renegotiate the terms of peace between the two realms. After this loss of face, Leo responded with a typically Byzantine plan. He sent word to the Magyars, the tribe living just northeast of the Danube, that he wanted to mount a joint operation Against their mutual adversary. The Magyars liked the sound of this opportunity for plunder and agreed. Leo hastily offered Tarsus a truce, which was accepted, and transferred troops from Anatolia to the Balkans in the spring of 895. Under the command of Nicephorus Phocas, a strong Byzantine army now marched north to the border. Meanwhile, the imperial fleet sailed up to the Danube and began to load the Magyars on board. Leo was still happy not to fight, though, and at the same time an ambassador made his way to Simeon to negotiate peace. But Simeon imprisoned the ambassador and marched his army south to meet focus. When news of this reached Leo, he gave the go-ahead for the Magyars to be ferried across to the Dobruja. Simeon was taken completely by surprise. He whirled around as he discovered what had happened, but his unprepared army were thrice routed by the marauding Magyars. Eventually, the Khan had to hide in a mountain fortress after an undignified retreat. In the meantime, the Magyars brought their Bulgar prisoners and sold them to the Byzantines. Again, peace was offered, and this time Simeon accepted However, Leo did not leave his army in place during negotiations. Instead, the men of Anatolia rushed home to deal with the harvest. As soon as they were gone, Simeon imprisoned the new ambassador sent to treat with him. The Khan complained loudly about Byzantine hypocrisy. They had hired a pagan people to attack their Christian neighbors. He repeatedly demanded retranslations of the peace terms sent to him in Greek. He suspected linguistic trickery would be used to swindle him. <laughs> Simeon knew the Byzantines well. They could hardly pretend this sort of thing was impossible. But Simeon was merely stalling for time. He made contact with the Pechenegs, a Turkic tribe who lived east of the Magyars, and proposed a joint offensive to them. The shoe was truly on the other foot this time, and the steppe warriors drove the Magyars from their lands. The startled Magyars fled west and eventually settled on the Hungarian plain, where they have lived ever since. More on them at the end of the century. With these raiders out of his hair, Simeon demanded that Leo release the prisoners he'd recently bought. Leo, hoping that the Bulgarians were suitably cowed by this experience, agreed and let them go. However, Simeon took this as a sign of weakness and immediately began preparing to invade. Leo again called up men from Anatolia and for whatever reason did not allow Nicephorus' focus to lead them. Instead, he chose a less experienced general. In spring 896, the two sides met at the town of Bulgarophagon in the theme of Macedonia, and Simeon's men won a resounding victory. They took many prisoners and drove the rest off. We have no more details on this battle, but can only assume that the Bulgars mastered the situation well, and perhaps by invading Roman territory, they outmaneuvered the men of Anatolia. Leo now had to agree to Simeon's terms, which included the renewal of an annual payment, which many saw as a form of tribute, and the return of Bulgarian traders to the capital. The Bulgars had also raided the Thracian countryside, scooping up more prisoners, who they now ransomed back to the Romans. The emperor had to agree to all of this, The men of Tarsus were again on the move in the east, and he couldn't afford to fight on two fronts. The dynamics of Roman Bulgarian politics were thus very similar to how they'd been at the beginning of the century. The Bulgars would always have a military advantage while the Byzantines kept men in the east. And yet, the Bulgars could never feel entirely safe. The Magyar raids had done serious damage and was a reminder of the latent power of Byzantium. Tensions between the two sides were set to continue. In the east, the empire's main protagonist remained the Emir of Tarsus. Tarsus, as you know, is a city in Cilicia, the fertile land just across the Taurus Mountains, The Romans had cut the power of Melitene further north and had now conquered Tefriki, the Paulician stronghold. But volunteers for jihad still came through Cilicia, and so the majority of action was now on that front. In 897, the Emir's forces sacked Corum, the HQ of the new theme of Cappadocia. Three years later, the eastern armies got their revenge when they captured the emir alive after defeating his army on Cilician soil. The city itself held firm against any attempt to take it, but on land, the Romans continued to gain the upper hand in serious battles. Back at home, though, Leo suffered through the first attempt to assassinate him in 897. Over the past decade, the emperor's marriage to his first wife, Theophano, had become increasingly distant. They had one child, a daughter who did not live long, and then it seems they spent less and less time together. Leo took back up with his former mistress, Zoe, "'the daughter of Stilianos Zautsis. "'As you may recall, Basil had married her off to end her liaison with his son, "'but Zoe's husband had passed away, and Leo's affection for her remained strong. "'During 897, Leo took her with him on a visit to a suburban palace, "'and she woke him in the middle of the night.' She heard noises outside and discovered that members of her family were preparing to murder the emperor. Stilianos Zaudzis had brought his extended family into political circles, and it seemed some of the men of his clan aimed to make it a permanent move. Naturally, Leo punished the family for their attempted coup, but a year later the situation changed. Theophano died, leaving Leo widowed. His love for Zoe was such that he planned to marry her and thus keep her family at least somewhat involved in court life. The suggestion at the time was that Zoe's family might have been behind the deaths of both the Empress and Zoe's former husband. Regardless of the truth, these rumours were damaging. Leo's spiritual advisor, a monk called Euthymius, warned him that if he married her, many would believe that the dark stories about her were true. But Leo ignored him. He clearly loved Zoe and wanted her to be his second and final wife. The couple were married in 898, and she bore him a daughter called Anna. However, tragedy struck less than two years later when Zoe became ill with some kind of fever and died. Her father perished in the same year, and afraid at the certain loss of status which would follow these deaths, men of the Zautzi's family plotted to overthrow Leo again. When his agents discovered this, the whole lot of them were exiled. The emperor was in a difficult position. Roman law condemned third marriages, and yet he had no heir, and was only 32 years old. Next time, Leo will step into not-so-wise territory by insisting on a third and then a fourth marriage, as, just like his father Basil, he would go to extreme lengths to ensure the survival of the Macedonian dynasty. Next episode will also be the end of the narrative for this century, so do get your questions in now. A big thank you to Tom Daly of the American Biography podcast. Tom is doing something somewhat similar to the Byzantine Stories series, but with American history. So instead of following the narratives of presidents, as we do with emperors, he explores the lives of less famous but key people who made an important contribution to the development of the United States. He's begun with John Marshall the fourth Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. Check out his show in all the usual places or go to acast.com forward slash American Biography.